Hello, everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th, when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections, and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, May the 17th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me today are Pat Leahy and Harry McGee from our political staff and news reporter Jack Power. The story dominating the headlines so far this week has been about the rising tensions around the state's systems for housing asylum seekers with incidents in the very different locations of Dublin City and the village of Inch in County Clare. As we record this, the lead headline on irishtimes.com reads as follows, warning that anti-immigrant protests could escalate amid coalition tensions over response to crisis. So we want to look at some of these issues and what's causing them in a little more detail today. So, Harry, you were there. Yes, I was there on Friday along with our colleague Mark Hilliard. And Sandwood Street is in the south inner city, very close to the National Maternity Hospital in Hollis Street. Uh, there are lots of local authority, uh, maisonettes and flats around there. And there's a particular alleyway. Actually, if you go along Mount Street any day of the week, you're met with an extraordinary sight. Because here in the heartland of Dublin's business centre, outside the International Protection Office, there are at least 30 tents erected along the side of the road and down this ramp that leads to an underground car park. And they've all been erected by those who are seeking asylum who have not been able to get accommodation or for whom accommodation has not been provided. But if you go around the area, you'll see that in one or two other places, you'll see small clusters of tents uh, where asylum seekers newly arrived in Dublin uh, have pitched their tents. So one of those encampments was in an alleyway off Sandwood Street in the south inner city near derelict uh, flats uh, as it happened. So last week there was an incident that happened on Thursday evening in which uh, some local youths, in in addition to one or two people who came in who had links to anti-migrant groups, had a standoff with uh, some of the refugees staying at the encampment and it flared up and became a conflagration and in the end there was a, a scuffle in which a man wielded a, a, a what looked like a long piece of railing against youths and then he ended up being knocked to the ground by a bicycle and then being kicked and assaulted by uh, the youths. And then uh, very shortly afterwards, the, a social media post went up on one of the anti-migrant sites advertising a march on Friday to essentially to clear that particular uh, encampment out. So what happened on Friday is that uh, people came from outside the area. There were locals as well uh, who were very unhappy about the encampment um, being there. Uh, There were rumours going around that there were terrorists there. uh, There were people who would be unsafe around women and children, etc. There was a counter demonstration uh, by left wing activists, mainly a lot of people, I think, associated with people before profit. And both of them uh, congregated around the entrance to this encampment and they got the public order um, unit was called in. So there was a standoff essentially for a couple of hours. There was quite a lot of verbals, uh, lots of uh, insults being uh, shouted across the Gorda uh, barrier, uh, but there were no violent scenes. 
And at the end, the uh, Gordi escorted the um, pro-migrant group away. The other group followed. So they kind of went to this strange procession down Pier Street, uh, both both camps walking on either side of the road, separated by Gordi. And they ended. It, they dispersed in Trinity College, uh, where most of the, the, the left-wing people went in through the portals of Trinity College and the others just dispersed uh, around uh, College Green. But while that was happening, somebody back at the encampment uh, set fire to what was left of the tents and the uh, various bits of detritus that were around the place. And uh, essentially it was an arson attack and the encampment was burned to, to the ground. And that gave a very powerful uh, and symbolic um, message, you know, that was kind of chilling in, in a way. And that's, that provoked an awful lot of, of reaction. And it showed perhaps uh, one of the nastiest moments uh, in relation to the whole issue of those seeking international protection and refugees coming in from Ukraine. But as we have discovered, it's not isolated and there are concerns amongst the authority that such uh, violence or confrontational scenes or such nastiness is going to escalate as people grow increasingly fatigued uh, with this particular situation. So, Jack, you were there the next day to witness the aftermath of what Harry described. Yeah, so I went down on Saturday morning to the camp, which at that stage was obviously um, abandoned. And the the scene was really, um, you know, there was just debris and belongings strewn around kind of the, the rubble, effectively, kind of burnt mattresses, burnt couches. There were, you know, pots and pans and cooking utensils, books, small kind of uh, paintings, different stuff like that, suitcase, toothbrushes, kind of shoes and hats and sleeping bags and and a tent that had kind of been left behind, I imagine, after those that were staying there, it was kind of a small number, felt threatened as the camp began to be targeted toward the end of the end of last week. We're not really sure where the people who were staying in the camp went to. I believe some of them might have gone to join the, the nearby camp, which Harry was talking about, on Mount Street, outside the International Protection Offices, which is only about five minutes walk. And so I, I headed there on Saturday as well to chat to a few people you know, that have been camped there for a week or so. And, you know, the, the sentiment from the homeless asylum seekers there was, in a lot of cases, just kind of concern for their, their safety. You know, they're obviously in an intensely vulnerable position being out on the street. And I think there were there were even further incidents on Saturday at that larger camp where some kind of protesters were, were walking by and kind of shouting insults and kind of targeting the, the larger camp. And I, I believe there's kind of a, a bigger kind of gather presence there on a more regular basis, trying to keep an eye on it going forward. And so just for people, some of our listeners don't necessarily know Dublin in detail, the Mount Street, which you described, which is where this office is, which people have congregated around, presumably because that's where they have to go in order to process their applications. And that, that was their first, their first port of call. It's very much a business district. It's, it's, it's office blocks, very few residences, but right next beside it is a kind of, is a, is an inner city community of local authority housing. So it's a, a kind of a, I'm not sure if this is quite the word, but it's a, it's an interface area. Yeah, and as you said, that's the the point at which they they make their asylum applications. So it's kind of a natural port where you know I imagine kind of a few tents were set up initially, and then it effectively just grew. One tent was pitched beside the next, beside the next, and those that were staying there were saying, you know, there was you know kind of more tents being added every few days. I think even on Saturday, I counted about fifty tents, which would have been you know, kind of a, a, an increase on what would have been there a week before. Harry, can I just ask you, just for a bit more detail, when you were there, what kind of numbers are we talking about, about the two, the demonstration and the counter-demonstration? And, and how many guards were there on the ground? I think there were probably about, um, I mean, the crowds came and went, but I think there were probably 100 on each side, 
maybe a little bit more than that. And I think there were probably about 50 Gordy uh, strewn in a line down the centre. And I must say, it was extremely well pleased. Uh, the Gordy uh, maintained a very high profile, kept a very calm demeanour. You know, you see scenes from the States where and other places where the cops just kind of weighed in. You know, there was nothing like that. They kept a very cool-headed disposition throughout the standoff. And essentially what they were able to do was they were able to diffuse any of the frustration or any of the anger. At the same time, you know, letting both sides know uh, that no line would be breached during the course of, of the evening. So it was what we might call, you know, in, in football parlance, or kind of the teams were both kind of shaping up against each other, you know, with uh, one side chanting repeatedly um, in Buddhist fashion, uh, various kind of mantras from the left, uh, while the other side were using slightly more biblical language to uh, express uh, their views. And occasionally the language got aggressive. When you say biblical, do you mean racist? They were, they were shouting stuff like terrorists, pedo, get them out, get them out you know, uh, unvetted, um, you know, and there were a couple of good old, old-fashioned oaths being thrown in, the, the F-bombs plenty and the C-word and what have you, you know, being thrown, but by only by individuals, not by the crowd as, as a whole. And maybe five or six of the people who were anti-migrant were very aggressive indeed, just in terms of the language and the body language that they, they used. Um, I mean, there were some, there were lots of teenagers there who were possibly local, most of them with hoods and with bandanas. And they were basically, you know, teenage boys being feral teenage boys in a, not a very nice way. But I, I don't think that they were associated with any political movement or political uh, cause. And then there were locals there who, you know, I mean, people will look at this and look at Inch and think they're very different situations. But the sentiment that underlies both of the protests are exactly the same. There is a kind of a fear or uh, unacceptance of people being hosted in in their communities. They don't want them there. Uh, the Inch um, community have been slightly more subtle in the way that they have expressed it in terms of, you know... Can you tell us exactly what's been going on in Inch? Well, in Inch, essentially, there was a, an old uh, facility, which I think was a hotel or, or guest house of some kind with a couple of holiday homes uh, that was initially uh, earmarked for Ukrainian refugees, but was... Uh, turned down on the basis that there was there were problems with its fire safety uh, certificate. And I think there were also problems uh, with its uh, sewage as well. I think the septic tank uh, might have had uh, difficulties. So it, it wasn't used. And then in the past week, uh, some 30 people seeking international protection uh, have been were moved in there. And uh, the locals heard that there were more going to be moved in. So they blockaded. It's in an isolated area, an inch, inches in West Clare, between Ennis and, and Lehinch and Ennis Diamond. Uh, the, um, they, they blockaded the, the road on both sides with tractors and with trailers to ensure that no other buses or transport uh, went to that particular uh, centre. And their argument was that, number one, it was too isolated. Number two, there was no fire safety certificate. And number th- three, there, were, there was no septic uh, tank, but the, the the subliminal message was that they 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 themselves were wary or suspicious of the people who were coming in, and we saw that happening before in many places. We saw it in Ennis Timon. Uh, actually, the once the asylum seekers went into Ennis Timon, there there were Syrians. Actually, they were they were accepted. We saw it in Balahadurin uh, um, um, many years ago, and we saw it more recently in Uthorard, uh where there was a public rally. 
um, when they tried to use a disused hotel on the approach into uh, Uchtarord. We see many of the same excuses being trotted out, but there is an underlying, you know, suspicion of, of you know, what they describe as unvetted male asylum seekers from safe countries arriving into the country. And that, that has become a political issue and it's something that the political authorities will have to deal with at, 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 the, um, at the same time. So the next point I was making there is that even though the protests in Inch and Dublin city centre manifested themselves in very different ways, uh, at the, the, the underlying sentiment wasn't all that different. And I suppose in a way, Pat, to turn, start turning to the, the actual politics of this, I mean, both those incidents are manifestations of the word polycrisis is, is overused sometimes, but it is a multiple complex crisis over which the current government doesn't seem to be able to assert control. It seems to be out of control. Yeah, because I suppose it is, it's dealing with, the, as governments all over Europe are dealing with a, uh, a refugee crisis caused principally by the the war in Ukraine. So that has seen 80,000 or so Ukrainians come here. The asylum seeker end of it, because of course Ukrainians are automatically granted special status here under an EU agreement. So they are not, even though they are seeking, you know, the protection of the Irish state and they are fleeing from war, they are not asylum seekers uh, in the, the true sense of the word, uh, I suppose, or in the legal uh, sense of the word. I'd add a couple of things to what the lads have said. Um, first of all, the, the burning of the tents is by no means the first arson attack that uh, that we've seen. There is a growing trend. The cabinet was told yesterday there's been 125 uh, anti-immigration uh, protests since the start of this year, um, which strikes me as rather a lot. A small number of those have turned violent and a number of them we've seen have featured arson attacks. On Thursday night, a centre that's being built by the former uh, presidential candidate Peter Casey in Buncrana in Donegal uh, was, uh, was subject of uh, an arson attack and he specifically said that was for uh, Ukrainians to house 50 Ukrainians and that was uh, there was an arson attack on, uh, on that and there's been... Other isolated uh, attempts, and there was a building in Sherrod Street in Dublin in January, was uh, was burned because a rumour had gone out locally that it was being um, readied for uh, for asylum seekers. So this is a real, uh, it's a real problem uh, for uh, for the government. And while I take Harry's point that the the actual protest itself was very effectively policed uh, the other night, uh, I mean. Obviously, the protection afforded to the uh, asylum seekers who were living in tents left something to be desired. And we know this because their tents were uh, were, were burned down. Uh, I walked down Mount Street yesterday past the tents that the guys have uh, described and uh, there was a guard a car across the road with three guards sitting uh, in it. And of course, it's not feasible to have every group of tents afforded 24-hour Garda protection, um, which only goes to show the, the need to find more sustainable and, uh, and semi-permanent housing uh, accommodation for, uh, for the people that are coming in. And just to, just to be clear about what happens, if people come to the, the centre in Mount Street, they arrive in Dublin Airport, they're sent to Mount Street, they say they wish to 
uh, claim international protection here. And then they are told, or, or, or some of them are told, typically single, younger single men are told, uh, I'm sorry, we have nowhere for you to go. So if you go to the refugee council or you go to other NGOs, they may be, they may be able to help you. And that's where the tented encampments come from. We've seen the difficulties, of course, that government and uh, agencies are having in accommodating asylum seekers. But there seems to be no end to those difficulties. Roderick O'Gorman um, said that the facility in, in, in Clare that is the subject of the boycott uh, was one of four, the other three are in Dublin, facilities that he had hoped to open this week uh, and next week. The department, perhaps not surprisingly, are not saying uh, they're not giving away the location of the, the three other centres in, uh, in Dublin, but it doesn't seem... Uh, it doesn't seem to be fanciful to suggest that they could be the subject of protesters too. But even if those four centres were opened and accommodated most of those 500 people who are currently living in tents or other, uh, or, or other accommodation that they have sourced for themselves because the department hasn't been able to find accommodation for them, even if those 500 were, uh, were accommodated, then within a couple of weeks there would be another build-up of people um, uh, because, uh, because of course, the numbers, uh, the numbers of people arriving here seeking inter- international protection, to, you know, continue. The num- numbers continue to arrive. So it's a very, very difficult, and as you say, multifaceted problem for the government. Yes. Let's take those issues one at a time, Jack. There's been some debate and possibly some disagreement about the kind of guarded strategy or guarded tactics which which Harry described earlier. Some suggestion from the government that the that the Gardaí perhaps don't have enough resources and then some pushback on that from um, from Drew Harris, the, the Garda Commissioner. Yeah, so in the aftermath on uh, Saturday of the, the makeshift camp being burnt out, there was you know pretty widespread condemnation across the political system from you know the Taoiseach of Radcar, Minister for Justice, Simon Harris. And and then the, the question kind of turned to at the start of the week, you know, what are you what are you doing about it? You know, uh, I think Taoiseach Leo Radcar suggested that maybe there weren't enough, you know, kind of guardie on the streets and that the government was hoping to recruit further kind of numbers. And then that was kind of somewhat contradicted by Minister for Justice Simon Harris after a meeting he had with the Garda Commissioner Drew Harris, where I think Drew Harris described it as you know, kind of operational capability that basically that they were satisfied that they could, you know, do their job effectively with the, the current number of guardi that they had in terms of policing these these anti immigration protests. Like I think Gardi as well kind of privately have kind of said that the issue really kind of stems from the 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 problem laying at the government's feet in terms of the, the failure to be able to source accommodation for these asylum seekers that, that kind of creates these um I suppose the the potential for these situations to kind of escalate, and this has kind of been brewing since you know I think in late January. Um, they said that the City West Transit Hub, which is the first protocol for people who arrive into the country seeking asylum, was was kind of full, and we've steadily seen those numbers that the department hasn't been able to house creep up from late January to the point you know a few weeks ago where it, where it surpassed kind of five hundred. So there's a little bit of finger pointing going on in terms of who's responsible or, or where we could be doing more in terms of that side of things. I want to look a little bit more at the high politics of this. First, we're going to take a break, though, just to remind you that if you haven't already, please do consider subscribing to the Irish Times. All you have to do is go to irishtimes.com slash subscribe for all our coverage. We'll be back after this. 
And you're very welcome back, Jack Power, Harry McGee and Pat Leahy are still here. I said we were going to move to the high politics of it. I'm not sure how high they are, but they're higher up the food chain, Pat, because you're writing about tensions at, at Cabinet that have arisen out of this. The responsible minister is is Roderick O'Gorman, who is, is technically Minister for Children. People might wonder why he's, he's responsible for this. It's because one of the objectives of the Green Party when it agreed to go into government two and a half or so years ago was it wanted to address the direct provision system, which was widely seen as a scandal. Perhaps they didn't anticipate what was going to end up on the table of, of Roderick O'Gorman at the time. Well, of course, they didn't anticipate, I suppose, a, a war in Ukraine. Very few people did. Yeah, it was direct provision was a touchstone issue for the Greens, the um, having uh, asylum seekers, many of whom, because their applications can take years to process through the system, were in uh, this direct provision system where they had their accommodation and their meals provided, but very little, uh, but very little else. And there was a feeling in many quarters that this was in some ways de- dehumanising for uh, for people who were trapped in it. And certainly many of the people who were in it were very unhappy with it. So it was a key pledge for the Greens and part of the programme for government to abolish, uh, abolish this system. And who knows, they might have been able to do that were it not for the influx of refugees from Ukraine last year. We should also say, as Harry has done extensive reporting on this, that not alone did 80,000 people from Ukraine arrive, but the numbers of people seeking asylum from other countries also jumped very significantly last year up I think 600%, Harry, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, in, in 2022 from, uh, from the previous year. Um, it seems to me that there, there, there's political danger for the government on, on this subject from, uh, from a couple of directions. There's obviously some difficulty for, uh, for the Greens having pledged to abolish direct provision and now having even more of a refugee crisis than, uh, than, than, than ever before over which they're presiding. There was, as we report this morning in Jack Horgan Jones's extensive reporting uh, on this, that uh, there was some, uh, well, depending on who you talk to, either a row at Cabinet or um, uh, lengthy and useful discussions on the, uh, on, on the refugee uh, crisis. Rodrigo Gorman, by all accounts, reiterated his appeal for help to other uh, uh, to, to other ministers who were asked some time ago to get their departments to source any possible buildings that they might have that could be used for refugee accommodation. Um, I think Dara O'Brien is reported as having pushed uh, pushed back on this, and uh, I, I, I expect we'll see more exchanges. Um, even on background briefings uh, on, on on this today, the, the the political danger to the coalition, I think, is twofold. Um, first of all, there's the the localized opposition to centres, which you know, if, I guess, if you ask people in in Inch and Clare today, if, what's their number one political issue, they they point fingers on uh, they they point fingers at, at this, and that is. Is or could be replicated all over the country um, when, when similar uh, in, in similar circumstances. The more broader political issue, I suppose, looking a bit farther down the tracks for, for the government is all the scrambling to deal with this. I think there's a danger of a view forming amongst people that they, can, you know, the government kind of can't do anything right. That this sort of basic requirement for 
competence that people have uh, for their government is 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 lacking. And you know, if people join the dots between the failures in providing refugee accommodation to the broader housing issue, you know, things like public transport, the perennial issue of the health service. I think there's a danger that, you know, that it undermines the government's claim to basic competence. And that's a huge issue for them. And it looks to me, Jack, as if this is likely to get worse rather than better. The sort of mathematics of Harry's reports, which Pat referred to there, the number of people who have come into the country and projections for the number of people who are likely to come in over the next few few while and the ability of the state to make up the shortfall, it looks like we're going to end up with more people on the streets. Am I wrong? Yeah, I mean, this, I mean, it's really been the the problem since the the weeks after the outbreak of the war in Ukraine, this kind of scramble to find enough accommodation for the numbers coming in. And, you know, the the department is still facing that problem. They they had kind of a twofold issue as well, where a lot of the contracts they had, for example, say with hotels or guest houses, have not been renewed as those providers instead are kind of pivoting back towards you know the tourism season and, and taking in guests and, and, and stuff like that. So they're losing some kind of cohort of the accommodation they do have at the same time, as, as Harry and Pat pointed out, there's this continuing kind of flow into the country. And as I said earlier, that the City West Transit Hub, which was set up to be that place where people would initially stay for you know a number of days um, before they're moved on to accommodation sourced elsewhere, that overflow facility is basically full. It has been for some time. So there's there's really nowhere for people to go. And as you said, it, it results in people quickly or immediately finding themselves sleeping rough and sleeping homeless, uh, particularly if they are, say, kind of a, a single male. The department has tried to prioritise women and children for any available accommodation when they arrive into the country. So it's one that, you know, the department have have been struggling to to cope with and, and deal with. And, you know, it doesn't look like it's going to get any easier. And um, there doesn't seem to be any great, you know, kind of cavalry coming over the hill. Modular housing that was, you know, promised months and months ago is, is still kind of only coming on stream in its first phases uh, now. I mean, that was hoped that that would be on stream, you know, months ago. Um, to house several hundred people. So in terms of the, the hotel side of things, they're under pressure. And in terms of the, the best laid plans of other avenues like modular housing, they're, they're under pressure as well. And then they're, they're under pressure from people coming in and arriving into the country. So we can expect more tents on the streets, more demonstrations around the country, Harry? I think we can, and and more political um, agitation. And I think we, can, we will see an escalation of protests. And I've no doubt that we're, we're seeing the... Um, emergence of a far-right movement or party that will begin to, I mean, a few of the parties have already registered, and I think that they will begin to contest elections from the local elections next year and all elections in the future. And I, I don't think Ireland will be any different from other countries uh, where, where um, anti-immigrant parties have, um, have, have grown and in some cases have become very big in recent years. There's, Pat was talking about the uh, the numbers coming in. The numbers of people seeking international protection were very high last year. It was 186% more than 2019, which was the last comparable year, and almost six times more than in 2021. But there was a COVID, there was a COVID element there. But the numbers have, have been very big, and there, there, there was we, we never had as many people seeking international protection as we had last year. It was a record year, and I think we it's come down slightly. But they do kind of tend to dip in the early parts of the year. I think 1300 January, Pat reported last week, 
and then 800 February, 800 March. But I think the numbers will begin to rise again as the summer goes on. And, you know, the inn is full. And, I mean, this crisis is just going to continue month after month, week after week, uh, until the end of the year. Now, there are some issues. Uh, I, I wouldn't blame somebody coming in who destroys their passport coming from a, from a poor place. I mean, you can't place the blame on the individuals, but you have to look at the integrity of the system. And they have made some moves uh, to deal with people who are destroying, deliberately destroying passports and identity documentations on planes and also um, people who are coming uh, from countries that are deemed to be safe. But if you look at direct provision, I think there are 5,000 people um, still living in direct provision who have full status now, you know, and um, there are lots of people who are living in direct provision who have full-time jobs. And then if you look at the Ukrainians coming in, uh, a lot of people from Ukraine who have come in or are staying in state accommodation have actually secured employment as well. So I think there has to be a look at some kind of system where the, you know, after a while, if a person is in employment, if they have status, that they begin a system where, where you know, the accommodation piece is tapered off. And, you know, they, they and I know that you're going out to a market where there's there's a paucity of housing and that's difficult. But I, I think that there has to be some kind of process, even perhaps minor at the start, to say that, that you will be in direct provision, you will be in direct accommodation for a period of time. But if you're established here, if you're putting down roots and if you have employment, so at some stage, you know, the, 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 um, that, that particular um, uh, cord has to, be, has to be severed, you know, and, and there will be a time, you know, when you'll be expected to do these things, uh, you know, uh, like everybody else, because they, they, a, a lot are moving towards having the status that every other citizen in the state has. And with that comes a responsibility of, and I know it's a huge struggle at the moment, but of finding your own accommodation and standing on one's own feet and doing things according uh, to one's own own light. But that that to do that, it takes a very, it takes a, a, you need to be strong, you need to be consistent, and you need to have good communications across the system. As we found in so many things in the Irish political system, you know, things just don't work. Communication is poor. Uh, different parts of the country have different systems. They have different ways of operating. You have some uh, um, units or some some elements of the state apparatus which are highly efficient, and there are some elements which are highly inefficient. And I think all of the faults of the Irish apparatus, the, the, the public service apparatus, and I'm not criticising individuals because individuals do a lot of work, but there is a systemic difficulty uh, that really comes to the fore uh, when we're confronted with crises like we have at the present. And that's why this is a polycrisis, isn't it? Isn't it, Pat? I mean, the very thing that Harry describes there, the reason why this is, you know, so appallingly bad right now, of course the Ukrainian crisis has been a huge part to play in it and the rise in, in asylum seekers from other countries over the, over the last year or so. But the other huge part of this is there's nowhere to live out there. I mean, so what Harry's talking about there, if, if you did um, get the 5,000 people who are currently in direct provision but have been accepted uh, and can now live and work legally in Ireland, if you said to them to leave, there's nowhere for them to go. Are they going to end up on the streets as well? That's the difficulty, yeah. And so much goes back to the housing crisis. And you look at problems of, you know, recruitment in various areas, the health service and that, shortage of teachers in some areas. And it all goes back to the housing housing crisis, which is, you know, we how many times every week do we say it? 
uh, on the podcast and in print, it's the single biggest thing facing uh, facing the government. And it is on that, I suspect, that they will be, above all, will be judged on it. So one point I want to go back to, though, just in relation to the government's approach to this is, and I'm writing a little bit about this this morning uh, in the paper, and Harry mentioned there that the numbers have come down in the first couple of months of the year as compared uh, to last year, come down quite significantly. Uh, I think there was, you know, about 800 a month, 800 people a month arriving claiming uh, international protections, distinct from Ukrainians um, in the first couple of months uh, of the year. That's down from maybe, you know, 13, 1400 the previous year on average. So, so a not insignificant drop off uh, in people, uh, the numbers of people arriving. And there is a sense, and no one in government will ever admit this, at least not on the record, but there is a sense in which part of the government's strategy to deal with this process is to manage demand. That is to say, to discourage people from coming here as opposed to going to other countries to claim uh, international protection. And I don't say that people in government are happy to see tents on the streets, but they are not unhappy for the message to go out to potential international protection claimants here who are leaving, you know, African countries or wherever and uh, seeking to go to another country. People are not displeased that the message should go out that it's quite difficult uh, in Ireland, particularly for young, uh, for young single men, and they might be going elsewhere. And as I say, nobody in government will ever uh, ad- admit this, and it's even get the difficult difficult to get them to acknowledge this uh, on on an off the record basis. But it is certainly uh, it is certainly the case. I know that from multiple conversations that I've had with people with some responsibility. Uh, for this or involvement in it at uh, at government level, that for the message to go out that Ireland is having difficulty coping with these numbers, it's not something that they uh, are unhappy about. So if that's an unspoken but known dirty little fact, you know, and you might even be more cynical and say the photographs of burnt tents on Sandwich Street uh, might reinforce that message, horrible though that idea is, isn't the reality that across Europe, uh, we only need to look to our near neighbours in the United Kingdom, different countries are competing to send out more and more unpleasant messages about the reception that awaits them should they land there. Yes, I think that's absolutely true. And you, as you say, look at what's uh, what's happening in the UK and this, uh, this the idea of deporting asylum seekers to Rwanda while they wait for their uh, for their applications to be judged upon is very clearly from that uh, from that school of thought. Only fair, I think, to point out that that you know it is all over Europe the system is creaking, and even before the Ukraine war, this was a huge issue. By and large, the Ukraine refugee crisis has been handled you know, amazingly well in some respects across uh, across Europe. Millions of refugees have been taken in to European countries on the understanding, of course, that this is a, uh, that the, this is a temporary thing. Um, but before, before the Ukraine war ever started, and, and, and for several years back, as anyone with a, you know, knowledge of European politics uh, will know, this has been a huge issue uh, throughout Europe, the arrival of, uh, of migrants, uh, from developing countries, from war-torn countries, is a huge issue in Europe, and um, and, and we can give out about 
politicians' handling of it all we want. But the fact of the matter is that electorates in uh, in Europe are very wary about the large scale arrival of uh, of migrants from Africa and from Asia in uh, in their countries. We can perhaps decry that, but it's pointless to deny it. There is another element to this, uh, Jack, which, which which you've written about a little bit over the last few days. And um, I mean, we've talked a lot in this podcast in the last couple of weeks about how the government is, a, is awash with cash. And maybe that serves to obscure this particular element of it. But you've been looking at the amount of money that's been spent by the state over the last uh, over the last year or two in terms of providing hotel accommodation for people from Ukraine or indeed for people seeking uh, international protection. It's really large sums of money um, at, at the moment. The, the way the state is configured, it's able to cope with that end of it. But it does paint a picture of, of who's actually making money out of this and where people are being sent. Yeah, so a few weeks ago, we wanted to um, look into, yeah, as you said, who who's making the money. So we submitted a Freedom of Information Act request to the department to just say, you know, to outline a breakdown of the top 10 or 15 highest paid providers of, of accommodation. They refused to um, disclose the identities of who they were paying the most money to. But separate to that kind of request, all government departments are required to publish on a quarterly basis basically all purchase orders and payments they make over 20 grand. So we had these logs of, I think there were close to 4,000 payments to you know all the various different um, companies that were providing accommodation from the, the smallest you know guest house in West Cork that was taking in five Ukrainians to you know a big massive 400 bed hotel um, that had been leased directly to the state so what we found was um Tifco um the hotel chain which also owns the travel lodge chain and previously had run the mandatory hotel quarantine system during covid and um, their various kind of companies and group um were paid more than 80 million last year by the department to house um, Ukrainian refugees and, and asylum seekers from from other countries, um, in you know several cases, uh, say for example in their travel lodge hotel on Townsend Street, you know nearby by our offices that they're leasing the entire facility um, to the state. And the other kind of big big providers were um, Tetrac, who own the City West site, so they, they're leasing both a hotel there, um, which Tetrac are running, and then as we said that large transit hub for. Um, people when they in, initially arrive in the country. So I think they were earning 34 um, million under state contracts last year. And, you know, I had a look at their company accounts and they said that they'd um, signed initial contracts for a period of two years. Um, and then a lot of the other big ones um, were large and well-established providers in the direct provision system. You know, some of these people who had um, their companies had signed initial contracts with the state back in 2000 when the direct provision system was set up. Um, companies like Mosney run the um, the former holiday camp up in, up in County Mead. I think they made around um, 16 million. Um, Mill Street Equestrian Services um, made you know, 14.7 million. Um, Bridgedock Care, who have become a big provider in the direct provision system, made around... Um, 14.7 million as well. So they're, they're very significant, um, significant sums. And some of these would have been for the companies who are just running, I suppose, what you describe as the traditional direct provision centers and, you know, have been for years and years and years. And then some of them are the large hotel chains that in recent years have been brought on effectively to manage the, the huge numbers coming from Ukraine and the, the very significant numbers of 
uh, of kind of asylum seekers from from other countries. Uh, and, and interestingly enough, like we we also kind of dug down. I think we we, ha- we ran the piece in in Monday's paper this week. We dug down into the the company structures um, of a lot of those providers. You know, some of them where their their parents entities were registered in in places like Luxembourg, Malta, the Isle of Man, and a lot of other cases as well. They were set up in such a way that they didn't have to publish, um, as most limited companies do, you know, annual financial reports so we could see, um, you know, how much profit um, they made or they will make next year. So the structures um, in the way that a lot of these companies are incorporated and set up um, kind of shields the amount of profit they make from um, from kind of transparency or, or kind of scrutiny. Am I right to be concerned about that, Harry, at all? I mean, the, the fact that particularly the last point there, that it's not clear to us what the profit margins are on this. We know these hotels have been made available. Some of them maybe are going to come back into the, We see that we hear, as we said earlier, that some of them are being brought back into the tourism market this uh, this year, but some of them aren't. We, you know, we, we have no visibility of value for money, I suppose. No, and that happened in Scotland as well, where they, I was looking at the issue of floatels or floating accommodation during the week. And in Scotland, they had two massive cruise ships that they berthed in Glasgow and in Edinburgh at a reported cost of £100 million sterling. But there was no visibility in Scotland either in relation to uh, the actual cost that was paid. It was all done on the, under the guise of kind of commercial contracts. And Jack makes a very valid point in relation to that. It's our taxpayers' money. We're entitled to know where it's going. Uh, Emmett Malone did a very interesting piece from Westport uh, in the last week in where, where, which he showed that a lot of the tourist accommodation in Westport hotels are completely block-booked uh, for Ukrainian uh, um, refugees and will not be open for the tourist season uh, at all. And that's going to have uh, implications and uh, knock-on effects uh, for the tourist industry. I did a piece in the autumn, um, I'm just working from memory here, but at the time I think the, the accommodating uh, asylum seekers in hotels... Uh, uh, international protection people and, and some Ukrainian refugees was costing in the in the region then of about 30 million euro every month. So that was like 360 million a year. I'm sure the costs have risen, uh, if not exponentially, they've risen more than incrementally um, um, since then. And I just did a piece last week, actually, which is kind of interesting in relation to figures as well. We have more Ukrainian refugees in Ireland than they have in France uh, as, as a global figure. And we have more than they have in Sweden and any of the Scandinavian countries and in many of the other countries throughout Europe. And when you look at all 27 EU states, we're the fifth highest pro rata, uh, which has accepted refugees into the country, which is a good thing in, in a way. But the other countries are all countries that are very close uh, to uh, Ukraine. Do we have any idea why that is? I mean, that makes me, to be honest, I feel quite proud that Ireland has stepped up in that way, but it would be good to know why that has happened. We have an open door policy and we have, you know, those who come in, um, if, if they go into France, for example, uh, after a certain amount of time, there's a very convoluted process that they have to go through. There's lots of bureaucracy, there's lots of red tape. Uh, they wouldn't be entitled to the same kind of allowances that they get here. They wouldn't have the same rights in relation to work. Uh, they don't have the same access to accommodation, you know, they have to, after a while in France, I think they really have to fend for themselves and then they have no guarantee that they're, that, that they're going to be allowed to stay after the initial period, which I believe to be six months or so, you know, and, and the same kind of uh, restrictions apply in other countries. So we've had an open-door policy here. Uh, we've been uh, quite generous. But, I mean, I mean, there's no point in being generous when we have when they're coming into a country where the system doesn't work, you know, and people are being left to fend for themselves on the streets of Dublin in tents which is like a, a ridiculous situation, you know. So we have to, 
People have to look at the situation rationally and have to look at capacity. And capacity is one of the things that, that I think the government has to have a, a, a cold and hard look at over the coming months and perhaps over the coming years, because this this, situ- this problem isn't going away. It's not temporary anymore. It's becoming semi-permanent. And if this war in the Ukraine keeps on kind of rumbling on as it has been, you know, it could be permanent. So we might have a, a long-term issue on our hands. Last word on this, Pat? Yeah, I... Um I think this isn't something that is uh, that is going to go away. There needs to be a sustainable system. We need a sustainable immigration system. And that requires, um, there's a whole bunch of people. If you talk to anybody who's involved in this uh, process, uh, and I have spoken to some people uh, on it, the system is too inefficient. Uh, it takes too long. An awful lot of people who are coming here and claiming asylum, especially from what are called Uh, safe countries, are really coming here to work. We have a crying need for uh, workers in certain industries that these people could could easily fulfil. That's what many of them are coming here. If there was a system um, that enabled these people to come here and uh, to come here and work, rather than go through the process of claiming uh, asylum and being accommodated, uh, I think that's what they would, um, I think, that's what they would do. So, you know, we need an efficient uh, asylum system, but we also need a system for uh, people who wish to work to be able to come here. And we need one that's a lot more efficient than the current system. Yeah, I'm not going to hold my breath for that, but maybe I'm too cynical, but experience teaches me to be so. We will leave it there for today. Thanks very much to Pat, to Harry and to Jack for joining us. Uh, that's it from us today. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. We will be back with you with our Friday wrap as usual. But until then, thanks very much for listening.